0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings,
1: Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: The FT Hello, and welcome to a packed edition of FT Science. This week, we roam from the Nobel Prize Awards in Stockholm to Science in Emerging Markets to the ethics of test tube babies and stem cell research, as we welcome also David Kelly, a biotech entrepreneur and venture capitalist, as our studio guest. Also on the show, we'll hear from our regular co-presenter Diana Garnham at the Conservative Party Conference in Birmingham.
2: We must continue to invest in R&D. If we don't, we have no ideas for the future.
0: And Science Magazine reports on the continuing saga around politics and research into human embryonic stem cells in the U.S.
3: I think the uncertainty with this situation is something that has a chilling effect on research.
0: I'm Andrew Jack, and you're listening to FT Science. The Nobel Prize Committee has just made its annual award for physics to Andrei Geim and Konstantin Novoselov for their work on graphene, a new form of carbon just a single atom thick. And on Monday, its 10 million kroner award for physiology or medicine went to Robert Edwards, the pioneer of in vitro fertilisation, whose research over three decades led to the birth of the first test tube baby in 1978 and more than 4 million others since. I'm here with David Kelly. David, you were a zoologist at Oxford and you launched a biotech business out of the university. Now you run a venture capital fund called H2O, which is trying to translate academic ideas into successful businesses. I'm wondering how you feel about uh, Bob Edwards' experience, quite frustrating over a number of decades, fighting scientific scepticism, funding challenges to translate ideas into practice. Is that something that you see very often?
4: Well, we wouldn't stick with something over decades, I suspect, so uh, we don't see uh, quite that level of frustration, but I'm uh, entirely sympathetic with his experience. Uh, It's very difficult to bring new technology through to the market. Uh, There are all sorts of uh, vested interests that work against you doing that, uh, and it just takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, and often the time and the effort from the right sort of people are not available either. Uh, And so many, many technologies will never get through to market. Uh, It's wonderful. It's wonderful that um, in vitro fertilization did succeed in the end. And with my own background in tropical medicine, I'm aware that it also uh, improves the lives of uh, individuals in in developing countries also. And I think uh, it's a surprise to people that that's the case. But
0: uh, those things are hugely valuable there, too. So you were uh, an academic researcher in zoology. What made you ultimately quit academia and decide to launch a business?
4: Well, I worked in tropical medicine, and tropical medicine is a very applied applied subject. uh, And I was frustrated that the very applied papers that I was writing were not translated into policy. uh, And I became increasingly interested in technology rather than science, and, and really how you drag things out of the lab or out of people's heads and into the real world, as it were, kicking and screaming.
0: And so tell us more about your initial company.
4: Well, the first company that I set up with uh, uh, Luke Alfie, uh, Paul Coleman uh, and others was uh, Oxitec, uh, which is a company developing methods of sterilising pest insects. It has agricultural applications, but it also has applications in public health, particularly for the control of mosquitoes. And specifically, in the case of the company now, for the control of dengue fever. Uh, And uh, that, I think, is a classic example of a technology which, without the effort that we put in over 18 or 24 months at the beginning of its life, would never have attracted the the venture capital to take it onto the next stage. And it wouldn't be in practice now. It would be still in a laboratory doing nobody any good.
0: So... What really does need to be done to get more of these ideas off the bench side and into the market? Mm. What, what's the real barrier?
4: We identify uh, experienced technology entrepreneurship quite narrowly at H2O as the lack. Technology transfer offices are resource-limited, and I think that's inevitable in public institutions, um, and they don't have the wherewithal to develop in-house a fully Uh, developed business plan that later stage risk capital can invest in Uh, later stage risk capital on the other hand don't rescue great technologies from bad business plans they look at hundreds of business plans and invest in the one that comes perfectly formed Uh, and as a result uh, there's a chicken and egg in which uh, VC can't invest pre-business plan but TTOs tech transfer offices cannot develop the business plans in which they wish to invest and there are various um, stopgap solutions which are applied that are more or less unsatisfactory. Unsatisfactory to the academics developing the technology and unsatisfactory to the venture capitalists that need to invest at a later stage. Um, and more often than not, unfortunately, those technologies simply
0: don't get through, don't, don't get into a business plan and don't get invested at all. So your value added is to really go in and work with the academics mm. to see whether if they tweak their focus in some way they could at least go the next stage in terms of finding funding drawing up a more formal approach to something that could turn into a business that's part of it
4: i think we are we invest technology entrepreneurship at risk in the development of those business plans now that's partly about uh, tweaking the technology but it's but it at a higher level it's it's really about taking the technology out to the market and bringing the messages back from the market to the technology and initiating a dialogue so that the academics' understanding market need can tweak the technology. And and ultimately, through that process, we can find that part of the market that needs the technology. And if we join those two up effectively, uh, and we can put those relationships down in paper within the business plan, then you have something that early-stage venture capital will start to take an interest in.
0: Now, let's move to the Conservative Party conference currently taking place in Birmingham. Alongside debates about child benefit reforms, participants are discussing changes to the science budget. I talked to Diana Garnham about the mood.
2: Well, I think in our in the science world, I think there's a general awareness of the importance of R&D and investing in innovation to develop the enterprises that will take us out of the recession. And that's across the floor of the, of the conference and in the fringe, where there's very high visibility for food manufacturing, health science in the local economy, innovation in public services, climate change, low carbon uh, economy. And in all of those, you know, the concluding points are we must continue to invest in R&D. If we don't, we have no ideas for the future. So I think in that sense, that's very strong. Alongside it, of course, is this very, very strong culture of no role for the state and that's a very difficult debate around the conference floor on whether the state has any role at all in science. At the other extreme is the, uh, the people arguing for no role for the state, that we should minimise the role of the state in everything, including funding science, and let's leave that to you know, commercial enterprises and to competition to decide what should be funded. And low awareness amongst that, a group about multidisciplinarity, the complexity of science funding, and all of those issues that really do need to be managed. Um, so that, that area is worrying, and I think for me came a bit out of left field. I hadn't expected it to be there. A lot of consensus about skills, um, that's a very dominant theme throughout the discussions with delegates and around the fringe. Employers are saying that there are, not that there are too many ga- graduates, but that they don't have the right skills. And they are actually excitedly looking forward to an increase in tuition fees, I think. I sense some feeling that if people have to pay for their courses, they may think much more carefully about what they study because they'll have to earn money to pay it back. So that was quite interesting. But then from delegates, you're getting this strong feel that their children and grandchildren will have large debts. Um, But generally, a very pro pro science atmosphere, which is very encouraging, I find very encouraging.
0: And I guess obviously that you'd hear that a lot in the corridors and at fringe meetings and so on, but not much in terms of the rhetoric from the the big-name political leaders around science, do you think?
2: Um, Probably not from the big-name leaders, but it is very much amongst the the delegates and the new MPs. I mean, I've just been to a fringe event uh, that the Girl Guides have run on girls' attitudes, and the careers and the education for girls and the need for them to go into things like engineering and science and how do we create the right environment, very, very strong from those professional women who are attending the conference. And I think they're quite a, they're an articulate and powerful voice now in this party. Um, so it'll be interesting to see that. And one of the areas they're very exercised about, you know, apart from the role models and issues, is why do positive attitudes towards education generally and science in particular completely die when young girls move from primary school to secondary school, which, you know, and they they have lots of ideas about how to tackle that. It was a very positive field from, from the women participating in these debates.
0: And do you get a sense, talking to some of the practitioners, the researchers, the scientists on the ground, that they're already feeling the squeeze and they're actually already starting to have to adapt in some way to these tougher times?
2: I, th- I think there's quite a low awareness of the debate they need to be engaged in. Um, what was interesting in a couple of the, the sessions that I've been to where scientists have been there, particularly in the NHE, you know, making the case for their particular area of science, the response has largely been, you know, you need to change, you're too stuck in your old ways. Um, you need to allow new entrants into the game. Um, they were even referred to, rather derogatory way, as the grandees of science. And I think the science community is less aware of that perception of them than perhaps we should be.
0: And perhaps the most surprising thing, any particular uh, stunning piece of research, interesting twist that you hadn't expected, that you've heard this week?
2: Um, yes, I think the... F- that what did surprise me was the focus of the industries that we don't often talk about as science industries, at how important science was for them. So, for example, in food, which has had a very high profile here, a very, very strong, um, very clear voice about the importance of investing in food science and technology and clarity about where all those businesses want to do that. And also a lot of interest from the big companies who you would expect to talk about science, but they're very focused in the issues, um, talking about sustainability and the low-carbon economy and what it means to their supply chain and um, quite a lot of broad thinking. So that's been encouraging.
0: Thanks very much, Diana. David Kelly, your latest project, the Chariot Fund, focuses on an important emerging market, India, as a centre of medical innovation. How's it supposed to work?
4: Well, it emerges from our experience at H2O over the last four years, um, in which we noticed that a number of technologies, those which are broadly about rationalising the use of clinical time, uh, are incredibly difficult to get into Western markets, developed clinical markets. Uh, And uh, it turns out that there are substantial vested interests that work against their adoption, Um, uh, it's not my word that you need to take for that. Um, Fortunately, I have uh, to hand a book written by a chap called Nigel Crisp, now Lord Crisp, who was the CEO of the NHS and former head of the Department of Health. Uh, The book's called Turning the World Upside Down, and it makes that point that there are vested interests within the NHS that work against the the adoption of technologies that use clinical time more efficiently. Now... The efficient use of clinical time in an Indian setting means that that rare skill set in consultant, whatever it might be, dermatology, is able to reach out to many more people, and indeed beyond the urban centres and into the rural poor. And those technologies have huge social value in those settings. And if you can get them into the hands of the right partners in those in, in a country like India, then they can have enormous social impact. Uh, there's a commercial benefit also to doing doing that which is that having created a shop window if you like for the technology having reduced it to operational practice uh, you can take those messages back into western markets and start to break down some of the resistance to adoption.
0: So give us an idea of the sort of projects that you're looking at within India.
4: Well so one of the technologies we work with is a method of creating very detailed 3D images uh, using regular digital stills camera technology Uh, it's the next best thing to having the image of whatever it might be in your hand and it has an early application in dermatology. Now that has uh, found great uh, buy-in in in the West for documentation of wounds and monitoring of response to therapy, Uh, but the telemedicine aspects of that have been underexploited. Taking that technology into India, uh, working with uh, partners at specialist diabetes centres and... uh, other other outreach partners uh, that technology can be used to monitor chronic wounds such as uh, venous ulcer and diabetic foot ulcer um, and other skin conditions and taking, the, taking images from uh, rural settings and mailing them back to consultants in urban centres who in a quiet half an hour can review 30 of these things and uh, call in those who need follow up so many more patients get seen uh, those who need follow up uh come in uh and with the partners we work with are treated on a on a not-for-profit basis uh and those who don't need follow-up don't have to mortgage themselves to for pointless uh, consultations and procedures
0: and the interesting thing is you're doing this not purely as a business venture but also partly in a philanthropic way is that right
4: well this is this is what's called an impact investment fund uh and uh Double bottom line fund is another piece of jargon that floats around. But basically, you're trying to create both social impact and commercial returns. Uh, and I guess it's the, that new philanthropy that uh, uh, is talked about a lot at the moment. Um, the value of a commercial discipline to the delivery of a business is is obvious, I think, uh, in terms of uh, discipline management um, and discipline, discipline delivery of, of milestones to cost and on time. Uh, and the social benefits uh, are often, um, if you like, a, a, a charitable part of that enterprise. But where where impact investment funds, uh, I think, are most interesting is where the social benefit synergizes
0: with the commercial benefit, and that's the case here with the Chariot Fund. So, which to say, you could you could probably make some sort of a commercial return, but at the same time, maybe a little bit less than pure private investors might want.
4: Well, I think that's the assumption. Uh, that there is a that there is a um, you're trading commercial return for social impact I wonder if that's true uh, and in the case of the charity fund we'll have to wait and see but I, I believe that actually the, the social impact uh, targets synergize with the commercial returns and can actually improve the commercial returns compared with what happens far too often with these with this class of technology things like telemedicine and community-based health technologies which uh, in spin-out companies arising from universities, understandably tilt at those commercial markets in the West uh, and may may uh, spin their wheels for five years before blowing up because, because they're resisted, the adoption is resisted. Um, now, that's not a very good return, taking those technologies into uh, um, high-need social markets, reducing them to practice, benefiting the, those social markets early, and then taking them back into the West. I think uh, is uh, a synergy, not a, not a trading of uh, commercial return for social benefit.
0: So are you ready to go or do you still need some funding or are there any more bureaucratic or medical obstacles still?
4: We are in uh, fundraising mode, just just getting into that. This is a formal uh, partnership with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and I'm delighted to say that they've recognised the importance of this uh, aspect of th- this this. Method of delivering on their their core remit as a school. They're 100 years old. They have over 100 years old. They have a, an international network, second to none, and a reputation in, in, in developing country medicine, uh, second to none. Uh, we've brought Nigel Crisp, who I mentioned earlier in. Uh, I'm delighted to say he's agreed to chair the advisory board. Um, we have a, a stellar cast of partners, both um, in the UK and in India, we're working with some very large not-for-profits in India, um, Aravindai Hospital, Narayana Herbdailaya, Heart Hospital, uh, to name just two of the, the very largest. These are world-class operations uh, providing paid work and using that to cross-subsidise the, uh, the free at the point of access uh, work that they do for the poor
0: in India. Sounds very exciting. Thank you. And now, let's hear our regular contribution from Science Magazine, which explores the continuing debates around stem cell research in the U.S. Over to Robert Friedrich in Washington.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Federal funding for human embryonic stem cell research is again being debated in the United States, as last week the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled to allow the National Institutes of Health to continue funding such research. David Moore is Senior Director for Government Relations at the Association of American Medical Colleges, a group that favors federal support of human embryonic stem cell research.
3: So there may be a series of resolutions here, a series of decision points that are made in the judicial process, but that may extend out over an extended period of time.
1: In particular, that same court will consider whether to reverse the preliminary injunction ruling by U.S. District Judge Royce Lamberth that human embryonic stem cell research is likely illegal, the ruling that halted federal funding for such research in August in the first place. But Lambeth's court could rule this month on the underlying case and potentially again shut down U.S. federal funding for human embryonic stem cell research until the next appeal. Again, David Moore.
3: I think the uncertainty with this situation is something that has a chilling effect on research. One of the reasons why we believe that Congress really does need to articulate what their intent was here and should do that sooner rather than later.
1: But at a congressional hearing in mid-September about funding human embryonic stem cell research, Senator Roger Wicker articulated that his intent hasn't changed since co-authoring the Dickey-Wicker Amendment that prohibits government funding of such research. In my opinion, the body of scientific evidence developed since 1995 has served only to strengthen the argument in favor of Dickey-Wicker. But the basic premise for the provision has not changed. It is this. Number one, The destruction of or cloning of human embryos for research purposes raises profound moral and ethical challenges. Number two, the federal government should not be involved in subsidizing this controversial life-altering research with taxpayer dollars. Number three, there are limited federal funds available for health-related research. Number four, if human embryonic research is to be done at all, it should be paid for with non taxpayer funds. While several scientists who testified at the hearing took issue with that line of reasoning for scientific reasons, Francis Collins, director of the U.S. National Institutes of Health, was asked how he, as a person of faith, is comfortable with human embryonic stem cell research.
5: In terms of the consequences of in vitro fertilization efforts, benevolent as they are, giving couples a chance to have children who otherwise could not, One of those consequences is the existence of hundreds of thousands of frozen embryos and others that are being discarded potentially all the time. And then faced with the ethical choice in that situation, I have come to the conclusion as a person of faith that the alternative of discarding uh, this embryo that's clearly not going to get used Versus for a small number of these, trying to turn them into a stem cell line that might ultimately teach us something about human development and medicine and ultimately help us come up with a treatment for Parkinson's disease or diabetes or spinal cord injury or some eye disease or liver disease. Which of those is the more ethical choice?
1: Given that the U.S. Congress is now in recess and many members are out campaigning The various bills introduced earlier this year, or any other bills introduced to legislate solutions to this question of federal funding for human embryonic stem cell research, won't be voted on until after the elections in November. In the meantime, funding may continue because the latest schedules of the courts suggest no further decisions on this matter until then. But without a legislative solution— the loser in the lower courts is expected to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court for a final decision. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Robert. And an interesting reminder
0: from Francis Collins there about that connection between IVF uh, and its contribution there with the Nobel Prize this week and stem cell research. David, I wonder, have you, in any of your uh, investigations of uh, search for projects clashed against that U.S. ethical debate around the use of stem cells?
4: We haven't uh, had any direct clash with stem cells. Obviously, we've in the past uh, worked with genetic modification technologies, and those themselves throw up huge uh, issues of uh, public acceptability. I'm personally fascinated by the, uh, rather than commenting on on the rights and wrongs of individual um, ethical positions, uh, fascinated to see that uh, in the US, uh, stem cell therapies are hugely controversial in a way that they aren't in Europe. And yet, on the other hand, genetic modification in Europe is hugely controversial in a way that they aren't in the US. Uh, and I wonder at the lack of a consensus.
0: <laughs> and, and what do we do about it? Does it need more education around science, do you think? A greater public debate? Is there a failure of the scientists to really communicate the issues?
4: I'm skeptical that that will work. I think that's I think it's clearly important that uh, the public is scientifically literate and can make can make sense of the arguments that that go around, but it but in the end I think it comes down to an accumulation of good news stories uh, when a technology has been demonstrated to have benefits and not accumulated uh, uh, deleterious effects, then I think uh, it becomes acceptable and I think genetic modification of crops has gone a long way down that, that line and I expect that to be the resolution rather than a eureka moment in the mind of the European public when they realise that actually the technology is uh, can be entirely safe.
0: And no fears about the famous unintended consequences, destruction of habitats and species as a result of a GM introduction, whether crops or insects? Well,
4: I, I think there are always um, uh, what-if stories that can be told. Um, I think the evidence to date is against those effects. And my own experience is that uh, genetically modified organisms always carry a fitness deficit compared with the wild type, and they tend to get weeded out over
0: time. David, thanks very much. So we've run out of time. All that's left for me is to thank our contributors in the UK and abroad, and our studio guest, David, Diana, and Robert in Washington. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by Emily Cadman. I'm Andrew Jack. Goodbye.
1: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.